Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special episode of Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. Dr. David Morelos here. Dr. Jessica Makono is currently on assignment, so I've taken this opportunity to have a guest on this podcast that I've been wanting to speak to and whose work I've been following for a number of years. As I've mentioned numerous times in past episodes of this podcast, the study of the transpersonal has brought me into contact with some very interesting people. What I loved, and still love, about studying transpersonal psychology was the intellectual community that welcomed some of the most wonderfully eccentric and brilliant scholars, writers, and mystics who continue to live their truth in the spirit of the transpersonal by adding profound depth to the psychological study of human spirituality. One such person I met on this journey is author, mentor, and mystic, Laurie Ann Lumby, who, through a series of books and teachings, works to acknowledge and honor the lesser-known side of the teachings of Jesus Christ through the lost teachings of Mary Magdalene. To say that I became intrigued by Lori's work after meeting her would be an understatement. Much like prior guest and Santa Morte scholar Antonio Primavera, Lori has spent decades studying the extant scholarship surrounding Mary Magdalene and has integrated this and other religious teachings and her personal experiences with the church to create a series of teachings that attempt to capture the true spirit of contemplative Christianity as told through Jesus's most self-realized disciple. And yet, according to Lumby, Mary Magdalene was more than just a student, but rather a true partner and contributor to Christ's original teachings. If this is true, as Lumby argues, then there is a side of Christian teachings that remain shrouded in darkness, the absence of which may deny many of us a much-needed sense of holism within the context of this very profound wisdom tradition. The question then becomes, how do we regain these lost teachings? How do we acknowledge this shadow side of Mary Magdalene's teachings in our attempt to acknowledge the shadow in ourselves? As you may guess, Lori Lumby has a lot to say on this topic. So without further ado, here's the interview with author, mentor, mystic, and friend, Lorianne Lumby. So, Lori, it's great to have you on the podcast, finally. It's awesome to be here, David. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I know we've, we've talked about it. I've been following a lot of your work on uh, social media, including your Facebook page. You're definitely one of those people that I met whose work really intrigued me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to finally get you on the show and talk a little bit about it. So first off, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about yourself and what really kindled your interest in the life and teachings of Mary Magdalene, which is the work that you do. Probably the, the short, easy answer to that question is what really got me started with the Mary Magdalene journey was Jesus Christ Superstar. 
I was attending Catholic school. I was in seventh or eighth grade and our music teacher who was a no longer a nun, but had been a nun at one point, played us the Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack. And my brain exploded and continues to be my favorite musical. And I think there were two things that I really uh, came away with from that. And the first thing was that Jesus was a real live human being that had emotions and fears and anger and doubt and took him off the pedestal and put him on even ground with the rest of us. And that opened a lot of doors for me, just spiritually and everything else. And, and then the Mary Magdalene piece, you know, here's this woman that is with Jesus, supporting Jesus, comforting Jesus, learning from him, holding the other apostles accountable. And it was really the time in my life that I had any glimpse of, wait, there was a woman that was hanging out with Jesus and she seemed to have a pretty significant role. And how am I just learning about this? So that was the entry point. And then in my mid twenties, mid late-ish twenties, I heard a calling to go into active ministry and began ministry training. And during that training, Mary Magdalene became a subject of study for me. And from that point forward, I think I've read every single academic book that has been written and published about Mary Magdalene, everything on the non-canonical scriptures that give us deeper, broader insights into what her role may have been and really a passion to reclaim that that authentic role of a woman ministering alongside Jesus and depending on how we interpret some of the non-canonical scripture may have been equal to Jesus in skill and ability and spiritual understanding. So yeah, that's what got me going. Yeah, to me that that is fascinating. Your work has sort of opened up this idea, for me at least, you know, that's given this, particularly the teachings of Jesus Christ, a lot more depth. And and I really like your explanation because it really resonates with me. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, I am, a, I love the theater, but that is one show that I've never seen. I, I've heard a lot of people talk about Jesus Christ Superstar. I've never mm-hmm. seen it for myself. Um, and so... But the fact that that would sort of humanize Jesus Christ to make him much more relatable. And then you add in this other piece, this sort of divine feminine aspect to it. And I could see how that would be a very powerful experience, particularly for somebody who was looking for something like that. Right. Yeah. And for me at the time, I wasn't looking for it. You know, I was just a good little Catholic girl in my plaid skirt, plaid uniform skirt, uh, doing what we're told to do. And voila, here comes this soundtrack that just blew my mind. And I think open doors to longings that I didn't even know I had and questions that I didn't really even know I had. And, you know, it wasn't until later, you know, later in my life that I really started to explore those questions, but that was definitely the spark that got it all started. So I wanted to address one of the points that you make in the beginning of your book. By the way, the book is called Only Love, The Secret Teachings of Mary Magdalene by Laurie Ann Lumby. 
one of the, the things that you point out is Mary Magdalene's name is actually a title that was bestowed on her for her work alongside Jesus Christ. And this is just one of the many points that you raised in the book that surprised me and something that I didn't know. So I was wondering if you could talk about what this title really means and why she was given it. Yeah. First of all, I can't take credit for that piece because it's the recognition of Magdalene uh, as being rooted in the Hebrew word Magdal Eder, which means tower of the flock or beacon of the flock. That research was done by uh, Margaret Starbird. And she's the one that I guess I'll say discovered or realized or reconfirmed something that someone else had already discovered. And then Cynthia Berjolt in her book on Mary Magdalene speaks of that as well. And so as Christ is a title, not a last name, Magdalene is also a title. And it's a designation of, at least my understanding or my belief, is that it's a designation and an acknowledgement of a level of attainment in her spiritual and psychological development that was attained. And so I think of it, you know, to put it into psychological terms, she was fully self-actualized and was being recognized as the one in among Jesus's companions that really got it that really fully understood and grasped what he was teaching and had full power and full utilization of the tools that he was using and had exercised those within herself and used those to become self-actualized and so was then given that designation. It's not so apparent in uh, Christian scripture or I should say canonical scripture, where we see that that level of attainment or that level of empowerment that Mary was given, it's more in the non-canonical scripture where we really see that fleshed out. So like in the gospel of Mary Magdalene, which is one of the non-canonical scripture, um, the gospel of the beloved companion, that really visits upon and flushes out that, that full leadership role that Mary really had. And we also see the tension of that in a patriarchal culture. And so when we see the resurrection accounts, for example, in the Gospels and the disciples' resistance to believing Mary's message, and specifically Peter's resistance to it, we really see that tension between Jesus's understanding or desire to create a more egalitarian paradigm and to elevate women into equal standing with men and doing that through the resurrection and empowering Mary to deliver the message of that and how the male disciples were like, nah, these are the ravings of a mad woman. This can't be true. What are you talking about? And so we see that tension right away as to how as soon as Jesus left the building, women lost their status. <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's almost like, a, um, you know, there are a number of titles in Buddhism, the term Rinpoche, which is one of the terms that is used in particularly Tibetan Buddhism to mean a certain level of attainment. So Trungpa right. Rinpoche, that's, that's the name that he went by, who founded uh, Naropa Institute and now is Naropa University, where I did my undergraduate work. It means precious one. And it's this, it's this sort of title, but you always hear him called that almost as if that's his last name. Right. You know what I mean? And so I know that every time I've heard Mary Magdalene, that's always what I thought as well. It was just sort of like, oh, okay, this is, this is her name. 
And that's what we've been taught. I mean, you know, at least being raised Catholic, and I think most mainline Christian churches just assume that Magdalene is her last name or that she came from a town called Magdalene. That's the other, I guess I'll say, theory that I've heard. But then when you look at biblical archaeology, there wasn't a town called Magdalene at the time that Jesus was living. So that puts that theory right out the door. So it makes much more sense that it be a title. Right. Yeah. If indeed she occupied that role for Jesus during his life, it, it would make perfect sense to me that that would be the case. And that, that this was an attempt to signify that she had attained a certain level of what would you how would you put it like spiritual realization or um, enlightenment, per se? Yeah, I would say you know, self-actualization, spiritual realization, you know, really, Jesus says it really clearly in scripture and it's uh, John's gospel. And I think it's chapter 17, but Jesus is offering this prayer that everybody be one as he and the father are one and I am one in the father. And, you know, this is obviously language that's been translated and redacted and all of that kind of stuff. But Ultimately, what Jesus, my understanding of what Jesus was trying to teach was self-actualization. How do we find that place of union within ourselves? How do we find that place of coming home to ourselves? How do we find that place of wholeness? And how do we do that in an integrated psycho-spiritual way? One of the things that I was really grateful for in our shared graduate school experience was getting the language for that. And say, oh, this is self-actualization. And this is how it's spoken of by the world of psychology. And, oh, that's what Jesus was doing. (laughs) And yeah, yeah. And, And I don't like to use the word like enlightenment only because of all of the garbage attached to that and all the strings and strands that are related to that that have come up in regards to those kinds of terms. But really coming into that place of wholeness within ourselves. Another way of saying it is that they came into the realization of love, you know, love of self, understanding love as what we are and who we're made to be and transcending that false perception of separation that creates fear and division and discord and conflict and really coming into that place of compassion. Yeah, you know, some of the other points you make in your book really resonated with me, including comparing teachings of Mary Magdalene to those of St. Teresa of Avila. So for me, St. Teresa is part of what I would call the mystical side of contemplative Christianity. I've drawn on St. Teresa's work numerous in my own work. I wear her medal. I even tracked down Bernini's famous sculpture of her in Rome, part of which I have tattooed on one of my arms. But to me, St. Teresa opened up an immense depth in Christian teaching with uh, particularly her book, Interior Castle. So in this sense, it's like she revealed this sort of shadow side of Christian teachings. And then, you know, of course, I don't mean evil or bad or anything like that, but rather this sort of unknown mystical side that can be shrouded in darkness, which has always been left out anytime I've had, you know, Christianity presented to me. I can tell you that uh, had a divine feminine aspect been presented alongside that, I might have been much more drawn to the church in my younger years. And so, and, and, and of course, in your book, you touch on the far-reaching implications of an acceptance of the teaching like that of Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious, why was the narrative of Mary Magdalene changed the way that it was? 
first of all, they're missing everything (laughs) (laughs) by denying the feminine. Um, Or I should say they're missing half of everything by denying the feminine. And, you know, this is something that I have meditated on deeply. It's something I've explored deeply. It's something that I talk about with my clients and students a lot is just the role of the divine feminine as I believe it was present in Jesus' teachings and Jesus' example and model and the way that he lived out his calling. And those that he, I guess I'll say, attracted to himself and those that he empowered through the work that he was doing. You know, when we look at the so-called chronological events of Christianity, or I should say the Jesus movement, and especially what happened after the death and resurrection. So after Jesus died, first of all, the scripture tells us the male disciples were hiding in the upper room. Those that were at the foot of the cross were all the women, um, with the possible exception of the disciple John. He may have been there. And kind of like when the stuff got real, the male disciples fled. And when Mary was given the gift of being witness to the resurrection, and that's a whole nother story we can talk about another time (laughs) or here, we'll see, and ordained to deliver the message, she wasn't believed. And it wasn't until As scripture tells it, it wasn't until the male disciples went to the tomb and saw it was empty that they believed it. So they had to have the tangible, practical truth or evidence of it, or it wasn't until Jesus appeared to them that they believed it. Then when you look at the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Mary is, this is a post-resurrection account, and she's trying to comfort the male disciples because they're sad and angry that their teacher is dead and they feel lost and they don't know what to do. And Mary is encouraging them. And right away, Peter says, why are we listening to her? She's a woman. And why would our teacher love her more than he loved us? And so right away, there's conflict between I don't want to say men and women, I want to say the patriarchy and the patriarchal conditioning and the oneness that Jesus tried to preach. So when you look at the early church and the unfolding of the early church, there's very quickly women are set aside as not part of the party. And that just got increasingly compounded as the Jesus movement then became Constantine's movement and became monarchical, hierarchical, patriarchal institution with all the trappings of royalty and empire and all of that kind of stuff. So that's the unfortunate part of the story. The fortunate part of the story is that if we believe the legends, Mary Magdalene didn't stop doing the work. She continued to share the message of love. She continued to heal and teach and preach. And um, according to the legends, went from Bethany to Egypt, Alexandria, Egypt, to the Provence area of France, and possibly even Glastonbury, England area. So she continued that work. And at the same time, women were becoming... Uh, taking on the role, the more mystical, contemplative roles of, of hermit. So we hear of the desert mothers and the desert fathers that were living in the wilderness and living a life of prayer and contemplation. 
And that really became what you called the shadow of Christianity or the underground movement of Christianity was this whole mystical, contemplative, uh, spirituality, self-reflection, self-development aspect that is, to me, it's that interior journey, which, um, you know, Teresa Teresa of Avila talks about it as the interior castle. And so we see this whole underground movement, if you will. And so it's kind of like the divine feminine went other underground because it wasn't a sa- it wasn't safe above ground. And it just continued to develop and percolate and expand over the course of the last 2000 years. And that's really, um, for me, when I started my ministry training, the first course that I had was on contemplative prayer and specifically exploring the work of St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Benedict and looking at of Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. And really the whole focus was on that mystical development, contemplative development of Christianity, um, which to me is a psychology when it's um, interpreted and approached in the right way. Right. I, I completely agree with you. I know that this is a, you know, a huge simplification and, you know, because my exposure, my personal exposure to Christianity as a child, and that was sort of how prayer was explained to me. Okay. You ask God basically for things that you want, or you're the one doing all the talk. And the, the contemplative aspect that you were, were referring to is what fascinates me because it is the exact opposite. It's like, okay, you sit down and you're quiet and you open yourself up to this immense depth and breadth of knowledge and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for some reason, I've never, you know, for most of my life since I was a kid, I've never really associated Christianity with that. I, I, and so until I got to St. Teresa and now, you know, Mary Magdalene and this, this very, just like you said, you know, contemplative, spiritual part of it that has always seems to have run alongside it. It's, it's run parallel to it, but it, in right. a much less visible way. Right. Yeah. And really in tandem. And Albert Nolan, who I think he's Dominican, I think he's a Dominican priest. He has a book that um, is called Jesus Today. And I don't remember the subtitle of it, but he addresses this very question. And he says, there's two churches. There's the mystical church and the institutional church and kind of never the twain shall meet, except they influence and infuse each other. So when you look at, you know, like the history of Catholicism, for example, it's always been the mystics that have brought the church back to its proper place. And so when the institution has gone off on the insane path of indulgences or the inquisition or any of the other, the crusades, any of the other evils that have been done in the name of God, it's been the mystics that have said, hey guys, come back over here. You forgot why we're really here. We're here for the purpose of love and compassion and serving those that are in need, not this stuff. And that's happened over and over and over throughout the history of the Catholic church is it's the mystics saying, come on back, come on back, come on back. Yeah. And yeah. And, um, and at the same time, the mystics are always the ones getting in trouble. So who's always brought before the inquisition or challenged or questioned, it's always the mystics. So Teresa of Avila, Francis of Assisi, um, St. Bernard of Subaru, um, 
Catherine of Siena. I mean, it's just uh, Meister Eichhardt. You know, they're all brought before the Inquisition or at least questioned and challenged and confronted because they want to talk about love and personal relationship and that personal development piece and are less concerned with the intricacies of dogma and institutional law and all of those other things. So yeah, they're always... They're there parallel in tandem as an accountability check and disturbing each other. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, and, that, and that's that's exactly so, sometimes it has to be that way, you, you know, mm-hmm. in order to there has to be some sort of provocation or something like that, I guess. is how Right. It, but like, how do we provoke the other side into coming to or coming back to what is where the way it's supposed to be or into a new form of growth. Sometimes it's like that. We have to be, you know, and I use the, the old uh, anecdote of like a, a pearl, you know, in a, in an oyster. Right. It has to be that irritant, you know? Yep. Yeah. And so it, it, the, the story is fascinating to me, but uh, you know, one, what you were saying about uh, patriarchy, I mean, I think that every every one of the world's great religions has to face what patriarchy has done to these wisdom traditions. What really drew me into transpersonal psychology was that idea. And I remember reading it, and it was um, Huston Smith. And one of the things that Huston Smith said was, at the core of every one of the world's great wisdom traditions, there is a contemplative core. And this is what we're talking about. We're talking yep. about this this part that you that you're referring to that really brings it back to the original intention and gives you a personal experience with the divine rather than, okay, you have to go through this particular church, you have to do it this way, and because you're part of our group, you can't like these people over here. Yep. Any of that other stuff. To me, that was what was always fascinating. And to me, there's no question that that was one of my big draws into the transpersonal was sort of looking at this and then looking at it. You know, I'm not a religious scholar Mm -hmm. uh, by any means, but I I definitely remember looking at that and saying, "Okay, this is what really makes sense. And that each one of these contemplative cores to the world's great wisdom traditions will lead you in this basically same direction. Correct. yeah, so you have this personal experience. And I know that, you know, when I, where I went to school at Naropa, it was definitely more Eastern-based because it was rooted in Buddhism. But as I was um, mentioned in the, the one of the last episodes that Jessica and I did about uh, sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, a number of the world's great religions have had to, they've had a reckoning around this idea, you yep. know? There's, there's been a lot of abuse. It doesn't, I mean, Catholic Church is just one. There's... Uh, I, I, I talked a little bit about some of the scandals that have happened in the Buddhist community as well, mm-hmm. you know, and again, we're getting back to the same idea and it ties that it has to this patriarchal sort of view that has taken over for the last, I don't know, how long would you say, you know, 2000 years? Well, according to Rianne Eisler, about 5,000 years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, because you look at, you know, Judaism is patriarchal. And, you know, that predates the Jesus movement by at least 2000 years. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, you, you know, not not to go off on a tangent, but you can see that that conflict between the patriarchy and more matri- matriarchal or egalitarian culture right there in the Old Testament and Hebrew scripture, you can see that conflict. So, it's been a battle that humanity's been fighting for quite some time. 
Yeah. And again, you know, if, if one is meant to provoke the other from time to time, or one is meant to serve as an irritant for the other from time to time, I can definitely see that. But there needs to be that balance, you know? There needs Absolutely. To, yeah. And, and it, for so long, it seems like it's been so completely out of balance. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's great to see that, you know, along with a lot of the changes that are happening just in the world today, you know, things, old systems that are dying and new systems that are coming into being that this is something that is being taken more seriously that this divine feminine aspect hopefully will be given new voice and again this is your work right yeah yeah at least in the context of the tradition that i grew up in you know this is mary magdalene or mary the magdalene is my platform because she represents that and you know to me the casting aside of her is really the core wound of Christianity. And, you know, I should say casting her aside and in doing so casting aside the divine feminine is really the core wound of Christianity. You know, that's a fascinating statement because of the work that I do. And I'm right about to write a journal article about how it is that I try to bring in transpersonal elements into what I do professionally, which as you know, is substance abuse. I work with federal inmates. Mm-hmm. exclusively men. And that singular idea right there of this core wounding is without a doubt for me, indispensable. Yeah. And trying to reintegrate. And there are a number of ways that we do this, believe it or not, through the language of CBT. And that's really what the journal article is, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? which is what we use, you know, and I have to stay within those confines, but there's still a lot of creativity uh, that is allowed within that sort of framework. And this idea of core wounding and sort of falling away from this, what Jung would have called the great mother archetype or this sense of the divine feminine and the little things that we try to do within the program that sort of bring it back. That One of the ways that we do that is something called process. Yeah. And then, and, and this is the way I explain it. I use that context, the context that you're talking about right now, which is this sort of more logos-based masculine way of thinking versus this much more processual way of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to watch. It's amazing to watch because when it works with a group of men, particularly in a hyper-masculinized environment like a prison, yep. it, is, it is so amazing to watch and to see men supporting each other. They're really connecting with that great mother archetype or that divine feminine part of themselves mm. that was that they fell away from so long ago. And and then I have men, you know, that I work with that come out of the program and they say, you know, Dr. Morales, this is the this was my favorite part of the whole program. Was just that that one day a week where we had process group. You know, the rest of the time we're talking about concepts and it, it's uh, what we call didactic or you know, we work out of journals, so we have a curriculum and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And it's all very basic, you know, rational thinking stuff. Like how do we get, how do we, you know, think more rationally and how do we make better choices and stuff like that. But there's that, there's that one part of it that is this very process oriented piece. And it is when they understand it and when they start really embracing the creativity of it, it's, it's just a beautiful thing to watch. I don't know. I don't know how else to explain it. It's just to see men supporting men in that way through yeah. this sort of very feminine, divine feminine side. I totally get it. I mean, that's the work I do with authentic freedom. It's the, you know, the protocol I developed is rooted in that idea of healing separation. And I use seven as 
kind of the metaphorical number, metaphorical in the context of a process of moving into completion. And there's a couple of times in scripture, it says that Mary Magdalene was healed of seven demons. And when I look at that now through different eyes and several of the scholars that write on her speak of this in the same way as saying she wasn't healed of demons in the way that we have been trained to think about what that means. Instead, it's she completed a process of unifying the places within herself that were separate, that had become separate separated or wounded. And that's the work I do. So I'm supporting people all the time on what are those places within that are broken, that are unhealed, that are unrealized, that have not been integrated. And what process do we need to help bring those into union? Because I found that, and I'm sure you're experiencing the same thing, we can think about this stuff intellectually but until we've brought it into a process that actually makes it real within our physical form and our spiritual form, it's always an effort. You know, it's like we're always trying to do the right thing. Whereas if we heal that brokenness, we don't have to try anymore because the wound that created the disordered behavior, or disordered thinking in the first place isn't there anymore. And it really produces profound, enduring healing and wellness and change. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Because, and, and that's the difference, particularly in substance abuse. Yeah. Between, between being really healed and sort of having to get up and white knuckle your day-to-day -day interactions, your day-to-day -day tasks, your, your yep. day -to -day, everything you're doing in the day-to-day, -day because the core wounding has not still been not been addressed. All we're doing is really just changing the behavior. You know? right. And yeah, that's always a battle. A lot of the guys that I work with, they are really worried about that. Yeah. So there is, without a doubt, that draw for completion, for wholeness, for healing, that I have to keep sort of gently guiding them toward. Mm -hmm. right? that, hey, if we get to this place, all that white knuckling that you're worried about having to get up and do this for the next 20, 30 years or whatever, it's not going to be nearly as difficult as you think. You're going to be challenged, no question. You'll have difficult days. You'll have right. you know, triggers. You'll still have all of that, but it's not going to be this constant exhausting fight all the time because we are really getting to the core of what the original wounding was. Right. You know? Yep. Yeah, so I, I, I get it. I, I absolutely get it. I think that that's fascinating, the work. And so and that's just sort of how parallel, you know, the work that we do really is. I, so I wanted to talk about Mary Magdalene's relationship with Jesus. You know, it's interesting is I've been witnessing a number of relationship stories lately that have made me think about your description of Jesus and Mary. When I, when I go to do the social media and stuff like that, we'll put down this sort of spoiler alert because I know not everybody has seen uh, the new Matrix movie, the Matrix Resurrections movie. Right. So, yeah, Jessica and I just watched it just uh, last week. And this relationship that Neo has with Trinity really becomes the central focus of the new movie. And, you know, Jess and I also watched a miniseries about F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald, which also explored this dynamic. That one was a few years old, had Christina Ricci in it playing Zelda Fitzgerald. Yep. Yeah, and, and they only did one season, unfortunately. So they get right up to the point where he's searching for his inspiration for The Great Gatsby. You know, F. Scott Fitzgerald's found success with This Side of Paradise. 
but he hasn't gotten to the great Gatsby yet, which is going to be, you know, ultimately probably one of the, the best novels ever written. But there seems to be this admission that without this divine feminine side, there is no Neo, there is no F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm. And I, I really liked how they emphasize Trinity's role in helping Neo remember who he is and how she really steps forward in the new movie as a true partner rather than this sort of support role that was in the background. So as you know, as I was just speaking about, work with the inmates in a federal prison and getting them to embrace this mythical idea of a holy grail or the most evolved form of their inner feminine is potentially very powerful, especially in a, in a masculinized environment like a prison. Right. And that's what it, yeah, that's what it really feels like you're pointing to here. I was wondering if you could speak about this relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene and your idea, and this is a quote from your book, you had this in quotes between you complete me versus this idea of, quote, beloved partnership. Yes. <laughs> That's an easy question, right? That's just an yeah, easy right, right. That's an easy question. There's so many layers to that. There's so many layers to the answer to that. Um, the first thing I want to touch on, I think, is is the external, most easily easily question around the Jesus Mary Magdalene relationship, especially because there's been so many books that have so many fiction books and pseudo nonfiction that have shined a light on were Jesus and Mary Magdalene a couple? Were they married? Did they have kids? All of that kind of stuff. And, you know, in my novel, Song of the Beloved, I do portray them as being an intimate couple. And I think there's definitely room for discussion about that. Number one, because of the Catholic Church's ongoing tradition of celibacy, which seems kind of unnecessary at this point, but that's a whole nother conversation but also because of how the feminine role has been denigrated and basically edited right out of the Jesus story. So I think it's an entertaining conversation to say, or exploration to look at where Jesus and Mary Magdalene married, did they have kids and all of that kind of stuff. From a scientific perspective, we have absolutely zero support one way or the other to say that they were or they weren't. So I hold that topic loosely, I guess. Like, I don't want to get married to one position or another uh, until we have scientific knowledge or until we have actual evidence that's like a marriage certificate that shows that they were married. Um, I'm going to hold that one loosely. I do like the idea of Jesus having had a female partner. I like the idea of a love that isn't an arranged marriage, as would often have been the case at that time. I like the idea of a love that isn't a you complete me love, that isn't codependent, that is collaborative and integrated and authentic and whole and ultimately a self-actualized love. You know, like Abraham Maslow did research on self-actualized couples and described what that looked like and the characteristics of those kinds of relationships. Barbara Marks Hubbard talks about it. Rianne Eisler speaks about it in one of her books. My hope is that there's a new paradigm coming forward in human intimate relationships and that that new paradigm is not coming out of the you complete me prince riding in on a white horse to save the damsel in distress 
kind of right. paradigm, right. but really more where it's co-equal partners meeting to create a fulfilling relationship and a fulfilling life together. And I look at you and Jessica, and I think that you fit in that new paradigm. Oh, and thank you. I would like, you're welcome. And I would like to see that as the direction that we're going as, as a humanity, as it relates to uh, the Matrix movies. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I love Trinity. And, you know, as you and I had shared via email, I just recently rewatched one through three so I could get ready to watch four. And I've now watched the fourth one twice. And when I rewatched the first movie, first of all, there were so many things that I got on a much deeper level this time than I had in the previous viewings of the movie. You know, the- I, I'm going to have to go back and do that now that you mention it now, because now I'm fascinated with that idea. So I'm going to go back and watch them. I think. Yeah. It's really, it's a worthwhile endeavor. <laughs> And I think you're going to have a different perspective on Trinity's role when you go back to the first movie after seeing the fourth one. And well, this is going to be a spoiler. When Neo dies in the first movie, it's Trinity that raises him from the dead. She brings him back to life. Wow. And this on this viewing, I'm like, oh my God, she's Mary Magdalene. And he's obviously the Jesus um, character. You know, mm-hmm. all of these movies are the hero's journey and Jesus represents the hero. And there's always, you know, there's so many parallels in cinema of right. this, of this storyline. Right. So anyway, when I'm watching Matrix, the first one and Trinity brings Neo back to life, my brain exploded. And I was so thrilled. In fact, I wrote a blog about it because I'm like, there it is. There it is right there. Mary Magdalene raised Jesus from the dead. Period. There it is. Trinity raised Neo. Period. There it is. (laughs) You know, there's that one scene, too, at the very end of Resurrections where he is addressing, and I forget what they call them. uh, I forgot what they call them. The analysts, right. The analysts. They're addressing the analyst, and she's the one. He's standing behind her. Yes. And I was just like, that is really interesting to me. Like, it's just this real subtle sort of detail that they put in the movie, but she's the one that's come forward. He's standing behind her and he's letting her do the talking or not. No, let me, let me rephrase that. He's not letting her do the talking. She's doing the talk. Right. And and she is speaking of and for herself, you know, but as part of this partnership between her and Neo, I thought it was awesome. I said, that is so cool that they did that, that they really brought in her character that uh, Carrie Ann Moss came back yep. and, and to reprise the role again. And she was every bit as tough, every bit as uh, interesting as she was in the first three. Yeah. In the first yeah. three movies. And I was just, I, I, because she, she passed away. That was the thing. She dies in the third one. Yeah. And there, there are so many things that she says in the movie too then there's that one scene where it's just the two of them talking and they're surrounded by all these people and she's like you know there's this part of me that was like what took you so long right and and to me that's such a profound metaphor for exactly what we're talking about when you come to this divine 
feminine side of things. And it's this welcoming and it's just like, what took you so long to, to recognize that in order for it to be whole, there has to be this part of it. Yep. And it's the, it's to me, it's the conversation our world is having right now. It's, you know, we're looking at the ravages of unbridled hierarchy um, and an unbridled hierarchy that has been rooted in fear, power and control that is you know, if we want to give it gender terms, that's often associated with masculine. And I would qualify that by saying unholy masculine or toxic masculine, fear, power, and control. And, you know, we're, we're suffering the consequences of that. And our world is so out of balance. And we're coming to the point where we're going to be the cause of our own extinction if we don't find a way to bring balance into our human conversation, our human experience. And I think that that Mary Magdalene, Jesus, Mary the Magdalene, Jesus the Christ, Trinity Neo, you know, those stories really represent for us the deep need to have that kind of equal balance, equal respect, you know, an integration of partnership. And whether we're talking about male and female, it doesn't matter because it's, it's, how are we finding that place of wholeness? And what's missing in our world right now is the holy feminine, but also the holy masculine. You know, so we need that place of provision. We need protection. We need, you know, that active energy that is often associated with masculine. At the same time, we need that receiving that receptivity. We need the ability to yield and surrender and move gently and allow. And there needs to be a balanced interplay between the two. And, you know, we don't want all feminine energy either, because that also is going to get us out of balance. So those two stories, whether it's the Jesus Mary Magdalene story or the Trinity and Neo story, it's really about how do we come together in wholeness? How do we come together in cooperation? How do we come to understand what each other's mutual gifts are, respective gifts are, and how do we utilize those gifts in a way that serves the common good? And it's a critical question at this time in our human experience. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So Laurie, I wanted to sort of close out with a quote from your book that really resonated with me. And it's this quote, our magic leaks out of the corners of our being. And no matter how hard we try, others know we are different. We are thought of as strange, weird, unconventional. People grow uncomfortable in our presence and through no fault of our own, they try to stay clear of us. Our magic, even when we're hiding it, wakes people up. And some people do not want to be awakened. Our magic, even when we think we have it contained, triggers other people's unhealed wounds and unacknowledged fears. They are then sure we are to blame and they project their wounds upon us. So I cannot tell you how much this passage really resonated with me. And it really got me thinking about, again, this idea of the psychological wounding that you refer to in the book and what we're missing when we deny this magic and our wounds and our suffering that surrounds that. And it seems like this is what Mary Magdalene did, which is why the narrative of her life was so perverted. I was wondering if you could talk about how the teachings of Mary Magdalene address this psychological suffering, which I know you've done 
already a couple times throughout this interview, but I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about it and how so many of us wrestle with this in the day-to-day and how her teachings challenge us to move past the surface level understanding of our own relationship and the divine. Yeah, and there are two academic resources, historical documents that address this directly. And the first is the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And for your listeners, the version that I like the best is by the author Jean-Yves Leloup. And it's a direct translation from a Coptic, which is the language that the gospel was written in, and his own uh, spiritual and psychological reflection or commentary on that text. And there are passages within the text that specifically address what I would call the journey of self-actualization and the confrontation of our woundedness and what the layers and levels are of those wounds and how we can move through process to help heal and transform those wounds so that we are free of them and more and more whole. And David, I, with your interest in Teresa of Avila, I think that that text would be really interesting to you because I think there's a lot of overlap between what Mary speaks of in her gospel and Teresa's experience of the interior castle. The other text that has really just recently come into my view is a document from a French community that their legend is that they were followers and devotees of Mary Magdalene and that they have documents that were originally written by her and they have preserved and protected these documents for 2000 years. And this gospel is called the gospel of the beloved companion. And that gospel also addresses that transformational journey that I believe Mary learned from Jesus or they learned side by side and they accomplished that journey and became whole unto themselves through that work. Yeah, I definitely look forward to looking into those resources. So I appreciate the recommendation for sure. And if it is anything like the work of St. Teresa, I'll definitely enjoy it, I'm sure. Because that was really that for me, that sort of experience, that aha moment you were talking about was when I came across her work. So yeah, lastly, Lori, I was wondering if you could talk about Authentic Freedom Academy. And you are a prolific writer. Um, Project, I know you just published another book. You want to talk about any of your offerings through Authentic Freedom Academy or any of your other work and tell our listeners about it. I think that would be great. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Yeah, Authentic Freedom Academy is my service to the world. And it's through that that I provide one-on-one mentoring. I have about 30 online courses that I've published that I facilitate. And uh, Choosing Love is the most recent book that I published uh, just last week, in fact. So that's brand new out there. Yeah, so that's my 10th book. And I guess For this audience, the other two books I would really mention as of interest would be Song of the Beloved, which is my novel about Mary Magdalene and her years with Jesus. And then what I consider to be my cornerstone and the foundation of all the work I do, my book, Authentic Freedom, Claiming a Life of Contentment and Joy. 
Authentic freedom is really the my articulation of that seven-stage process that Mary Magdalene went through and then shared herself with others that helps to support us in coming into wholeness and becoming self-actualized. And that Authentic Freedom book, and then I have a course that is based on the book, that is also a cornerstone of my longer, more intensive training programs. So I have the Order of the Magdalene Priesthood training, which is about a year-long process of coursework, contemplative work, process work, and one-on-one mentoring, and the Order of Melchizedek training, which involves a study of the Kabbalah and um, my Authentic Freedom Protocol as well. So that's all available for uh, more information on my website. <laughs> And we'll definitely publish a link to your website on our website as well. So everybody knows where to find all of this stuff. But yeah, great stuff, Lori. It's been great having you on the show. Uh, like I said, I've been uh, wanting to talk to you and about your work for a while now. So I'm glad we finally were able to find the time to connect over it. Yeah, thank you. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to say thank you for joining us for this special bonus episode of Psychology After Dark. Dr. Jessica McCona will be rejoining us for our next episode, which will be a Patreon-exclusive episode in the coming weeks, so stick around for that. Also, we look forward to getting to the next season, where we have some great episode ideas in store. In the meantime, take care, and we'll see you soon. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved, and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo. <laughs>